I'm speaking with composer Peter Neschel, whose uh, career has given us scores pretty much in every genre and platform. Peter has worked on TV series like Rubicon and Lie to Me, uh, Marco Polo and Netflix, movies like Carriers and uh, Duck Tar, and of course his recent score to the critically acclaimed I, Tanya. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for uh, speaking today. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so to start, I would you know kind of love to know your background a bit. And so when did music enter your life, and at what point did you decide to take that and focus on a career path in uh, film and TV composition? Um, well, I mean, music's been in my life for a very, I mean, I started off in school playing, you know, the band instrument and really enjoyed it right from the get-go and I actually kind of started off as a classical alto saxophonist um, and played, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I played all through High school in high school, I got more into jazz, and I started to play um, more almost like rhythm and blues and funk and jazz and that type of stuff. I started to do that, and I didn't. I didn't initially go to school for music, but I was always taking music classes and always interested. And actually, for a period of time, really pursued uh, developing a career as an instrumentalist. Um, mm -hmm. I took a year off from college, and I went came down to New York City and went to the Manhattan School of Music, which was a fantastic experience for me. It was so eye-opening to see people my age who were already so fully committed to a career in music, whether as a instrumentalist or a composer or whatever it was. It was, I guess, that, that hadn't really entered my mind at that point, that that was something that I'd ever be able to do. But um, I met a lot of really, really inspiring people there. And um, I went back and finished my last year in school and was studying privately with a, a like a jazz master, uh, Jerry Berganzi up in Boston. And uh, I studied all throughout college with uh, um, a really kind of unsung jazz hero, a guy named Bill Barron. And I took all that and I came down to the city when I graduated and really wanted to be a musician, wanted to play on Broadway. I was trying to get my doubles together. And that was really where my focus was and playing in a lot of different types of ensembles. And then just by happenstance, a friend of mine introduced me to, uh, you know, what, what was happening in home studios at the time. Um, and it was really kind of, it wasn't the advent of MIDI, but it was when MIDI was becoming much more popular. Right. Um, and that was a huge turning point for me because I started to mess around with sitting in my apartment in New York and just literally from the ground up learning how to sequence, learning how to imitate sounds, thinking about arrangements, which was different for me than uh, when you're an instrumentalist and you're just trying to kind of nail your part. Um, and so... That was a really big turning point for me, um, and I spent about a year of that, and actually a, a good friend of mine who I grew up with, who I played in several bands with, uh, he and I started to get together regularly to kind of teach ourselves how to, because neither was really, I don't know if there were school programs even set up at the time for that type of stuff, and so we just, we just figured it out little by little, and then uh, I did a session for these two guys in New York who at the time had a really cutting edge, fantastic, forward-thinking commercial music production company called Tom and Andy. Oh, and yeah, I yeah. yeah, and I did a session for them that was just again another kind of huge epiphany for me. Um because I I started to hear things very differently by watching how they worked and how they how the, the musical collages that they were able to create and the way they combined different musical elements that you wouldn't necessarily 
you know, think, oh, those, that's going to sound great together. And they were just, they were really fantastic at doing, uh, just that. And so after I did the session with them, I approached them about, you know, meeting my studio partner and I, and we wanted to play them a tape of the stuff that we had been, you know, working on just in our, in, in our, you know, in our spare time. And, um, they loved it, and that was kind of that was a real. We weren't even trying to become composers for you know at the time it was a lot of commercial work, right? New York City, and it wasn't even something that we had sought out. But when I saw how they worked, I said to my studio partner, who's my studio partner now, but at the time I said, "We got to meet these guys. This is incredible what they're doing." Um, and so, so we played them some stuff. They loved what they heard. And we kind of quietly became a go-to freelance team for them and wrote with them uh, happily for, I don't know, maybe two years, uh, just kind of staying out of the spotlight, uh, writing, listening to a ton of music, really learning how to, how to you know, kick what sounded like the tracks of the day, which was a very interesting time because – you know, at that time, uh, they, were, they, they wanted things to sound very authentic and very real, like the popular music of the day, but it was still during that, that, uh, that time period where no, no band with any, you know, credibility would sell their music to sell soap. And so right. you had to become really good at sounding like this artist or that artist or this. And it was, unbeknownst to us, I think it was like this incredible training ground of just like we're doing club tracks and house tracks for beauty spots and we were doing all different all different types of tracks and and we just loved that um and did that for several years happily and we were growing our studio we 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 were making a really good living it was really it was a great way to kind of just get into the business without even really looking to get into the business yeah. and then and then from from there um a friend of mine from college uh, who was one of the producers on an independent film asked me to take a look at the film and visit the set and see if I'd be interested in doing that. And that was really how my first uh, uh, feature um, opportunity came about. And and then it was once I did a feature, I was kind of, you know, the bug. I was bitten by the bug. I mean, it was. Uh, it was a really incredible experience to kind of hear your music in a theater setting um, mixed in like that. The scale of it just blew me away compared to doing a TV commercial on TV. Um, and that was really the beginning of me just starting to get more into features and do documentaries. And, and that's pretty much what I've just been building upon ever since and happily got into it. But I would say that that didn't start to happen for me until my, my, my late twenties. Like I was not somebody that always knew, Oh, this is what I want to do. And I didn't apprentice with you know, a famous composer where I kind of learned the ropes, which I was always kind of jealous of people that did things like that because I just kind of sat in my bedroom and, you know, basically <laughs> figured it out. Um, but that's, so that's pretty much how I got into it. So it was kind of late and I, and you know, I, I was not, you know, a Star Wars fanatic when I was a kid or right. any of this. I, if anything, I kind of got into it more because I was just a fan of film and I just loved the language of film Absolutely. and thought, film was incredible and then music was my that was my window in 
Um, and you've you you were you're in New York still, right? It's where you're you're based out of. Um, yeah, I'm based out of it. I mean, I have my studio partner, this guy that I grew up with. He and I have a music production company, and um, we have a studio set up in LA in Atwater Village, um, and. We have one of the guys that works with us uh, is in Nashville, in in a single you know small like writing environment there. And then uh, the biggest studio setup that we have is in New York, and I spend most of my time in New York. Uh, I have a writing space out in Brooklyn that I go to and just hibernate in when I'm working on projects. But uh, the commercial facility is still, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a good business and we're, 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 we work with just fantastic people on great projects. So that's, that's, we, that's yeah, we keep doing it. We keep doing it. Yeah. So you're bi-coastal now and you, I mean, you're in Nashville too. A lot of stuff is happening there. And, and, uh, do you find it kind of, uh, overwhelming to kind of ping pong between the two coasts or do you kind of like coming over to LA and kind of working on films and then kind of going back and working on other stuff? I mean, is that, or does, do you like kind of the variety of everything? I do like the variety of everything. I mean, I I absolutely I'm like a closet I'm a real lover of LA whenever I go to LA. Not and it's just there's so many things about it that are thumbs up. Um I think that you know, uh it's not when I need to get out to LA, I get out to LA. The New York community and the production community, it's a much smaller uh, community than uh, it's teeny compared to LA, right. but, um, but it's good. And I've managed to kind of bounce from project to project while staying mostly in LA. There have definitely been projects where I've spent extended periods of time, uh, or in New York. And there, 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 there are definitely projects that I've, uh, you know, you have to be out to LA to take meetings or to work for a couple weeks at a time and make sure that everyone's on the same page and everyone's liking where, you know, where things are going. But I will say that's one of the kind of amazing things about technology is that, you know, you can work in wherever. And if you have an internet connection and, you know, you have access to the musicians that you need in the studio, it's your, you can kind of be anywhere, uh, you know. So I, I think that that's, yeah, that has changed a lot and it's going to continue to change. But I love, I don't, I don't, I like going back and forth. I have a whole different set of friends in LA who I know and love and, you know, and then New York is, New York is New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about, uh, I, Tanya a bit, um, which is getting some amazing critical praise and I saw it and it's, it's, it's just an amazing film and so wonderfully written and acted and, um, and your score is such a big part of that. Um, so how did you get involved with this project? I mean, was it did you get brought on late? Did you because I, have you worked with the the director Craig Gillespie before? Or is this your first time? This was my first time working with Craig. Um, I did not get brought on early. Um, in other words, I got brought on late, mm-hmm. um, and it was a it was a pretty compressed timeline. Um, I think they were still trying to figure out the right tone and the right role for each. Uh, for 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 how the score was operating in the film because you know the film musically there are a lot of songs in there and the songs play you know an, a just a critical a critical role in how you experience the film and you know I give a lot of credit to Sue Jacobs for for being able to make that happen like that that feeling the immediacy and just the selections of the songs that that she chose were were kind of incredible and 
then I think, and I, this was kind of what I said to Craig initially when we were, when we were chatting about ideas with music, I said, but then the score kind of can really play to this broader, deeper, um, or darker rather kind of dramatic element that's going on all surrounding the incident. Right. So the, the score doesn't really come in until, you know, halfway through the film. And then, and then it's just this other little character, this kind of slightly overblown, very, very dramatic character that's kind of speaking to, you know, it helps kind of underline and actually, frankly, it accentuates the humor of some of this stuff that you're watching because it's so ridiculously over the top. Um, and, you know, we, it took a while, it took a minute to kind of zero in on the right balance between the darkness and the humor and between the drama and kind of not, not, kind of not telegraphing too much and just letting it letting you know letting the film and the characters and the writing because you mentioned at the top and i couldn't agree more the script and the acting it's just incredible absolutely so yeah yeah and you know i worked i would say that the team that i worked most closely with was sue jacobs the music supervisor with craig and then uh, a big part of this film is um is tanya reigel is the is the editor she's just she I think I think in different hands this film would not play the way that it does, and I think that's all credit goes to Tanya for that. Right, and it's, I mean, you mentioned the film is so heavily kind of steeped in needle drops, and um, when you came on board, was were the songs kind of already spotted? Were they already in place, or did you have kind of uh, did you have to maybe put like, oh, this is the right place for the score, or, or oh, maybe we need to move a song out of here so I can take a chance with the score? Did you have to kind of negotiate your I guess your real estate, or was it kind of already like okay, this is the scene that needs to that needs original score or it's like a, it's, or... it's the latter it was it was pretty much figured out i mean i think that the 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 dance that sue was doing was okay we know we love this song from this artist but it's a small movie i don't know if we have money for that so there'd be multiple versions of songs but the the general layout of you know where there was going to be needle drop and or you know whether it was source music or scores or just mm -hmm. a song playing um, that, that was in place. And so were the spots that needed to be scored. There were a couple of really key spots. And I started, I started with kind of what I thought was the biggest and kind of hardest cue, which was the, the attack, the incident. Right. And that was a lot of thematic ideas kind of came from that and the, the sound and the, the, you know, the arrangement, the orchestration, all of that came out of that cue. And what what kind of kind of informed I guess the the, the sound of the score? I mean, what, what did you pull from to create the style and the the instruments you chose? Like, what, what kind of informed all of that? Was it were you looking at? I mean, the tone. You mentioned the tone. How complex the tone was because it is really complex. I mean, you're laughing at the absurdity of a scene, and then you're holding your breath from intensity. And and even though that that whole hit that went down was so ridiculous. I mean, the guy you know bashing his head through the door, and you're still I, it was still a tense moment, and your score had a you know big part of it. But what kind of narrowed you down to the, the instrument choices you made and the, the tone itself. I mean, how many, was it a lot of trial and error or did you kind of nail it on the first shot? Uh, well, okay. So that's two questions. I definitely didn't nail it on the first shot, but I came pretty close where we were modifying kind of the intensity or where changes occurred, mm -hmm. where shifts occurred in the score. Um, you know, I kind of always had this idea that there would be like two, two pianos playing simultaneously and that, 
there'd almost be two small string orchestras, like 10 or 11 pieces each. And that a lot of times they'd be playing in concert and together, which would kind of create a much larger, almost unreal large sound, which kind of helps with the drama and the overblown quality of everything. But at times they don't necessarily play so well together. And that was kind of, that was one of the, the, that was kind of like a um a musical structure that i was i was trying to play with in the score and approach it that way to think that there are these two characters that are kind of going at each other like that um so that and i think it's funny i i don't know that i would point to like another composer or another film a lot of it was just me watching it over and over again and watching the film from top to bottom several times and then stepping outside the studio. You know, typical creative process that I right. think everybody kind of goes through. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the most difficult things, at least for me, and one of the most difficult things to do is not to lean on, oh, that sounds like X, or oh, that sounds like Y, or that sounds like this composer, or that style. I think it's 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 very tempting to do that because it's a shorthand that people can understand. But a lot of times the stuff that really stands out and sticks in my mind, if you really listen to it, like there can be – there's just kind of maybe some elements that you would have never thought would be existing together and working so well together um, or just something, you know, a la kind of caveman about it, you know, right. that yeah. you're not – it's not it's not so refined it's not like oh that's exactly like this composer's work or that composer. i really try not to do that i try to just approach things kind of with a blank slate each time and not think well this has got to be like bernard Herrmann meets jerry goldsmith meets you know no like i i that's 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 just not how i approach it right and um when you when you do approach a film and you're kind of starting out and it, we can maybe use Itani as an example, but it could be any film. And I'm sure it's different between each project. But where does I guess where does that first note come from? Where what what really do you gravitate towards that kind of pulls that first idea out of your head? Do you love studying the characters and their like motivations? Do you like just kind of focusing on the cinematography, the pacing of the editing? I mean, is there anything in particular that you usually go to, or you just kind of let the music or the, let the movie speak to you and just you don't you know, just let's see what happens you know i think i mean honestly i think it's that i mean i wish i could say that the cinematography has like an effect on that i mean i i think listen if there's a cut of the film to watch i try to watch that several times and i try to understand what the filmmaker is trying to do with mm -hmm. the characters and with the story because i think that if you can if you can understand that then you're going to understand why you're writing the music that you're writing. Then it's not just music that's making pretty pictures look good. It's it's there's an idea behind it, and I think that that's really critical in in you know in having a successful score. You know, uh, I'm forgetting. I was listening to a podcast of another composer talking about it, and he said it so eloquently. I'm trying to remember who it was, and I'm not. But he said, um, you know, I always ask myself why does this scene need score? What is not happening on the screen that the actors and the writing and what's not being conveyed that the score could add to the scene? Right. And I think that that's, that's a really important thing. I mean, my process tends to be to watch the cut, try to understand the film, 
And then when I write, I actually tend not to write to any particular scenes initially. I just try to write music that feels like the film. And even if it's not a you know, fully executed suite of sorts, it could just be a series of ideas you know, that are a minute long, a minute and a half long, whatever they are, and get a sound palette that is starting to feel like the world of the film. And here's, you know, I'm going to need some music with pacing elements in it, or I'm going to need, and just think much more abstractly initially. And I'm always just so pleasantly surprised because there's always one or two of those ideas that when you then start spotting it around the film, it just feels so organically matched to kind of what you're watching and and how you're experiencing it i love that when that happens when you just kind of have that synthesis and it just all makes sense all of a sudden then you kind of you have that moment (laughs) it's 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 yes that's that's also very stress relieving by the way (laughs) um so kind of looking overall at your pro like uh, you know as your job as a composer as your profession what is the most rewarding thing about being a composer Oh, I mean, I think I, I, I mean, I think the day that I get tired of the thrill of watching a piece of my music elevate a scene, uh, you know, a piece of music that I've written elevate a scene or really make people excited about watching something like if I get tired of that, then it's time to move on because I don't get tired of that. Yeah. That is the most that is like the single most rewarding thing. You know, it was like my first feature experience when I saw it in a theater. I, I, I couldn't I just. I just couldn't, I, I was so smitten with, you know, the scale of it. And, and there were so many things about that experience. It was so much more of a complete experience to me. And, you know, I still go for that. And frankly, what's interesting is that I feel like that, that, that used to be much more of the realm of, of film. And I think that, you know, we're certainly living in this golden age of TV. And I think so much of that has now kind of migrated or combined with the TV ecosystem and the stuff that you see and hear on TV is it feels like feature films to me like they it's, it's incredible stuff that's being produced for the and you know this everybody has like a halfway decent system that they're listening to stuff on at home so you know you're not listening to you know a mono playback through like a you know three inch speaker absolutely I mean yeah TV has taken off in such a way where I mean I, I think a lot of the great auteur kind of storytellers are going to television and yeah, every now and then we'll get an amazing film like I Tanya that kind of breaks the mold out of the, kind of the studio blockbusters, but it's a, uh, there's a lot of great work on television right now. It's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's also a lot of great work in film, let's face it. Right. And, and, and most of, and you know, it, it's, I think it's interesting because some of it is the big studio fair. Some of that stuff is just flawless. It's unbelievable. And the level of execution is incredible. But they're also, as you're saying, they're these smaller films that aren't, you know, budget-wise, that still have huge ideas and have huge heart. And you watch Lady Bird and, you know, it kind of takes your breath away. Like, you're like, how does somebody capture a performance like that and create that? And, you know, there's not superheroes flying across the screen. And, you know, it sticks with you. You think about it for three, four days later. You have conversations with friends and family about it. So... And uh, yeah, it's those memorable moments. And Lady Bird was one of those other movies that yeah, you you take with you. And I mean, I mean, I was, I'm still talking with people about Itania, and people are texting me about it, and we're discussing it. Like it's 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 great to have conversations after the movie. So it's not well, just exactly. A... <laughs> I think well, and Itania I think is really unique because in a very non-preachy way, it it touches on three incredibly topical issues. It 
it, it talks, it, it really explores gender, it really explores class, and it really does a kind of goofball exploration <laughs> of the truth. And what if, what's the truth? And you can't think of three topics that aren't like just screaming at us daily in the headlines. Like this is the conversation that we're now having. And without it feeling like somebody's giving you a history lesson or somebody's telling you what's right from wrong, it's just there it is. And you're right. It, the movie veers very quickly from something that you just are chuckling at to something that you're gasping at because yeah. you, yeah. you just can't even. But somehow like both – like it's not like one's – you know th 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 those elements work together. They really, they 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 really really work together. Like they don't make you know an uneven film. They somehow add up to something much greater. Yeah, and I mean the screenplay is just that's like the nail of it. It's just like right there, and it's I mean how Steve handled that tone and everything is just amazing. Just <laughs> break, breaking the fourth wall, and it was great. <laughs> Incredible, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for your for your time today and for discussing uh, your work and, and your career. And it's been uh, so great to kind of uh, pick your brain a bit and kind of uh, live in your world. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you as well.